Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello again, my friend, and welcome in to another edition of the Stream Police Podcast. This monthly look at things streaming in movies, television, music, you name it. I'm Clint Davis. I talk movies and TV here on the show every single month. Always glad to bring it to you from my closet in beautiful Columbus, Ohio. That's where I do my part of the show. So a bit of a bummer this month. You've only got me along for the ride this time. So I will be your humble narrator through this entire episode. Uh, Andy is not going to be with us this month. He was gambling in Havana. He took a little risk. And I think you know how the rest of that goes. So anyway, we'll hear from Andy hopefully uh, the next time on the show. So that means I'll be giving you five songs to add to the never-ending playlist in just a little bit. If it's your first time checking out the Stream Police, we're a humble a humble, proud people here uh, on this little show that uh, comes to you, like I said, from a closet uh, in central Ohio. And we don't pitch underwear or socks or uh, um, websites for hiring people or any <laughs> squatty potties or anything like that uh, on this show. So we just kind of rely on you guys to give us some feedback and, and, and pass it along to your friends, to your family, anybody you think might enjoy this show and our looks at uh, what's going on in entertainment every month. We don't ask a whole lot uh, of you here. Just uh, check out the show and maybe spread the word as well. Although that that last part is purely optional, of course. Um, check me out on YouTube at Overdue Review if you just can't get enough of me here. If maybe you want to see what I look like, if you want to put a, a face to the name, as they say, a face to the voice. And you can also follow me on Instagram. I am at Mr. Clint. Davis. Andy is there at Andy Sedlak. His last name is S-E-D-L-A-K. Have you ventured back to a movie theater yet? I know I was talking, uh, the last couple episodes of the show, I've talked about movies that are in theaters right now, but I've been watching them on HBO Max because they've been doing that thing where this year they're they're debuting the movies the same day as they're in theaters. They're debuting them on HBO Max, all the Warner Brothers movies, and I think that's been great. I think it's been a great way to justify the, uh, you know, kind of high cost of HBO Max, especially compared to some of the other streamers. So they, they, they debuted at like a high cost rather than kind of debuting at $5 or something like Disney Plus. And then eventually later, of course, raising the price. They just came right out of the gate with a higher price. Uh, but I think they've given you a reason, and that is 
having these movies that are in theaters, you know, you're getting to watch them as part of your subscription and not having to pay another fee on top of it. At least for a month, you're getting to watch them uh, before they disappear for a little while longer. So, but I wonder, you know, have you ventured back to a movie theater yet? And if you have, what did it feel like? Because I have to imagine it's just so bizarre. I have not been to a movie theater. And you're talking, I'm someone who has like lived in movie theaters for the last decade plus of my life, for re- longer than that. I and mean, going back to when I was in high school, that was when I really started going to the movie theater a lot. My friends and I, we had this period like in the, from probably like 2000. Three to about 2006, specifically the end of our kind of high school years where we would just see every single movie. It didn't matter. Like any shitty movie you can think of that came out from like 03 to 06. We saw it in theaters and on the good ones too. But we would just go every weekend. and We'd see like two movies every single weekend. So we would see everything. It's so weird. It's like a period of time where like I just saw everything. And then I, you know, was more selective kind of after that. But from that period, I saw every shitty movie. So, And then when I became a, a critic and I started getting screeners and I started getting invites to, to go to see movies and, and screenings a few years ago, I was able to do that. Um, then I also, again, started to see like everything again, and I wasn't able to be as selective because it was a work thing. Um, so I, I've lived in theater. I've been in theaters a lot over the years, but I have not been to a movie theater since last January, January 2020 was the last time I went to a movie in a theater and I saw Parasite. That was right before it made history and won the Oscar, uh, won Best Picture and everything else. And, you know, became kind of a, a big national talking point. But I saw it at an art theater in Columbus and it was tremendous. I reviewed it on this show. I said it was the best movie of the year, I thought. And so at least I went out on a high note. At least the the last movie I saw in the theater was Parasite. It wasn't something I'm embarrassed of. So at least I can say that. So if the world did end and I was never able to go to a movie theater again, at least I went out on a high note. I got to see Parasite uh, in theaters. But I haven't seen an English language movie in theaters since probably like 2019 at this point. I'm, I'm wondering. I think the last English language movie I saw in theaters was Little Women. Again, talk about going out on a high note. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, God, it's been two whole, like, calendar years, basically, of not seeing, uh, not two whole calendar years, but it's been two years, essentially, since I saw an English-language movie in a theater, which is kind of weird to me. So, have you ventured back to a movie theater yet? Let me know. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can hit me up uh, on email at theclintdavis at gmail.com, T-H-E, Clint Davis at gmail.com. Uh, I used to always start the show here with a stogie in my closet. I always like to light a stogie, but I've been, I, I've called that off for the last year. So if you've been listening for the last year, you know, I haven't been smoking a stogie, but I'll, I'll get back to it at some point. I think we're finally seeing the light at the end of the tunnel now. Um, and we're all starting to kind of get our shots, regardless of if we have medical afflictions or, or not. Even younger people are starting to get it now. So no stogie in the closet until I get this pandemic under wraps, until we're all kind of feeling a lot better about things. So uh, I'm going to keep it again. Uh, I'm not going to break it out yet, but when I do, it's going to really mean something. But I wanted to start the show this month by talking about something major that I watched uh, as far as a live telecast goes. And I watch a lot of sports. So sports is usually the biggest live stuff 
that I watch on a regular basis. I don't watch a lot of, even in the last few years, I've kind of gotten disillusioned with watching award shows. I used to really love watching the award shows. I loved watching the Golden Globes. I loved watching even the SAG Awards. I always loved watching the Oscars, uh, Emmys to a lesser extent, but mostly because they would just make me mad a lot of times. But I, in the last few years, have just kind of stopped watching award shows. I haven't watched the Oscars the last couple of years. I uh, haven't watched the Emmys in a long time. I haven't watched the Golden Globes in a couple of years either. And it's just kind of a thing that I've just gotten out of watching. So I don't watch a lot of live shows. But I did venture back in and decide to watch the Grammys this year, which this was a, a show that Andy and I used to get together. We, for years, would always get together and watch the Grammys when we lived in the same town. And we just liked to watch it and kind of make fun of it because it was so easy to just take shots at the telecast. It was so stodgy, and the duets they would pair together were just so forced. It felt like something that came out of a, um, you know, like a, a market focus group tested kind of thing. And it was just easy to take shots at the whole thing. And the, the albums that would win, just everything kind of felt so out of touch. So it was just silly for so many years. And I think a lot of people felt the same way about the Grammys. But the show would get big ratings because they had the biggest name musicians, you know, performing together. And it was always a very lively atmosphere at the Staples Center. But this year I decided to tune into the Grammys. I don't even honestly know why I did it. I don't know if it was because I was hoping to see Phoebe Bridgers win some stuff because she was up for Best New Artist and stuff like that, and I'm a big fan of hers, but I I think it was just that I wanted to see how they were going to do this uh, because it just sounded interesting. And I have to say, I don't know what Andy thought about it. I don't know if he even watched it, but I really liked, from a television perspective, the way that the the telecast went this year. It was the most I've enjoyed watching the Grammys in a long time as far as pure actual enjoyment, not like you know, me trying to laugh at it, but real, like I thought this was good TV and I was actually looking forward to it every time it came back from a break. So it was much more fun, I thought, than it has been in years. I thought it was much more of a celebration of like new music rather than constantly just the Grammys has always been about let's look back 50 years in the past. Let's talk about the album that won the Grammy 50 years ago. Let's have Stevie Wonder perform for the hundredth time. Let's have um, you know, whatever aging classic rock stars that we can break out uh, and we can get them out of the nursing home and have them perform again and relive their glory days uh, on television. And apparently audiences loved that because the ratings, again, were always high. But I just always thought it was so dull, so out of touch, so boring when music is such an exciting thing and it's supposed to be about who's hot now. And there are always every year new exciting artists to look forward to seeing. And this show was much more of a celebration of what is great about music right now and what musicians are keeping, are carrying the torch now. Um, you know, and, and all these different genres that are popular right now because of the proliferation of streaming music. So there's so many different genres that are popular, whereas before you were a slave to uh, top 40 radio and they would only play a few certain genres really a song could only crack through if it was like basically a rock song a pop song certainly had to be english language um you know that kind of stuff and, and rarely it would be like a rap song maybe some kind of club dance track something like that but it had it was rare that that would those would break through but now it's like any genre doesn't matter and so you watch the grammys and you're seeing all these different performers you're hearing different languages i mean you're seeing 
Korean guys. You're seeing people from Latino people. I mean, you're seeing all kinds of different people representing different genres and I just thought it was really cool. And also Trevor Noah was hosting it. I thought he did a really good job, kept the whole thing kind of grounded, um, unlike some past hosts. You know, I mean, they for a while it was always LL Cool J, and he was always just like licking his lips and trying to be, I don't know, he was trying to be like LL Cool J in 1989 or something. And it was kind of weird. And then last year, like Alicia Keys was just kind of too bubbly. Like, I, I don't want to... I don't want to say she had her head up the all the performers' asses, but she kind of did. It felt like she was just way too like into it. She was, so it was hard to kind of relate to her. Um, I mean, I get it. You like music, Alicia. It's cool. It's great. Uh, you know, you've gone rich. You've gotten rich doing it. But Trevor Noah felt a little bit more grounded and uh, a little bit more natural. I thought in the role. Also, it was really cool to get to see like different big time acts being just fans of each other, whether it was like a cutaway shot of you seeing Harry Styles singing along with, you know, Haim lyrics, or you're seeing him seeing like Post Malone sing along when Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion are up there or something, you know, it was just cool to see stuff like that. I thought that was a great touch because the audience members were just the people who were like being nominated for awards. So it wasn't, you didn't have all these regular people in there. It was just like a party of the biggest people in music, and you got to see them kind of react to each other's music and be fans of each other, which was neat. Something that you don't get to see a lot of. I thought it made music look a lot less toxic than a lot of news reports and stuff do make that business seem. Um, you know, Megan Thee Stallion flipping out over Beyonce being there, even though she had worked with her on a song. I just thought that was fantastic. Um, and it was a reminder of a lot of these people even if they've worked together, are just seeing each other for like the first time because this year has been so weird. And even Taylor Swift, who wins album of the year again for like the hundredth time, she goes up there and gives a really cool speech where she, well, first off, she lets Aaron Dessner, uh, who, you know, kind of produced the album and co-wrote songs with her. She, she lets him really take the spotlight, which I thought was huge of her because she's the biggest, you know, person in music. Basically, she wins this massive award and she has the, you know, kind of humility and she's got her ego so like so much in check that she's able to give someone else the time to go talk about this record that they made instead of just talking about it herself, which would have been fine if she did as well. But then she says something about the other guy that they worked with. Like, I'm going to I'm looking forward to finally meeting you one day. And I can't remember who that was directed at. I can't remember if it was directed at um one of the other producers, or if it was directed at the guy from Bonnie Vare, I can't remember. It was aimed at somebody who that she had done songs with, but she hadn't met him. So it was kind of, uh, it was really cool. And here they are winning a Grammy, even though they never even met each other. So I thought it, that was also kind of relatable for a lot of people. Unfortunately, the ratings sucked ass. So they're probably going to go back to having classic rock acts pair up with each other uh, again next year. They're going to have new artists teaming up with ACDC or something and Angus Young using a walker, or they're going to invite Ed Sheeran back to perform seven times in the night, which it was kind of cool to not have to see Ed Sheeran for one night at the Grammys. I felt like it's been a decade since I haven't seen him there. Uh, but this was a really fun one. It was a good show uh, as far as t- television event goes. I, I was impressed. I liked it. It's most I've enjoyed an award show in a long time. It's certainly the Grammys. Most I've enjoyed that show in forever. You know, it's been a hell of a year, but we made it. Uh, Thank you, everybody at Rock Nation. And I really want to say thank you to my mama. She's not here with me today, but I know she's here with me in spirit. And she always believed I could do it. So thank you all so much. All right, speaking of music, let's get to 
a segment that I always like to do at the beginning of every episode of the Stream Police Podcast, and that is our look at the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. It's our 62nd entry into the canon of greatest TV show theme songs ever, and for this one, we're going to go back to 1998. So we're right at the as the 1990s are coming to a close. HBO is starting to kind of bloom as the most exciting network in original television. I mean, you got to remember, it's hard to think of this, but HBO before the late 90s was known really for airing movies, comedy specials, that was their bread and butter was airing comedy specials, and like R-rated kind of sleazy late night shows like Real Sex and Taxi Cab Confessions. Anybody remember those shows? I certainly remember them from staying up late when I was a kid watching those. But the, the network started to pour a lot of money into creating a full lineup of original shows that just felt different than anything else on TV coming up in around the late 90s. And this is where you get shows like The Sopranos and you get The Wire and you get uh, Six Feet Under. And, of course, Oz had already been on before that and, and Larry Sanders had already been on before that. But the late 90s was when it really started to come into its own as a network with a full lineup of great original shows. And I remember staying up late watching HBO as a kid. I'm about 12 or 13 years old. We used to steal cable. Did anybody else steal cable? My parents did that. They had the black box. They knew somebody at the cable company. They came over and set it up. And so we'd get like all the pay-per-views for free and stuff like that. But we got HBO for free. And so I'd get it up in my room and I'd watch it when I'm 12 or 13 years old. And I thought watching HBO was so like dangerous. I'd keep it turned down really low so that nobody knew I was watching it. But I specifically remember enjoying watching Sex and the City when I was about that age. And my love of the show started with its fun and carefree theme song. whole opening title sequence of Sex in the City was fantastic. If you ever watched the show, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You got this song, which sounds like a really good little salsa number, paired up with the sunny shots of Sarah Jessica Parker romping through Manhattan. She's wearing a tight pink tank top. She's got this big billowing white tutu on. And immediately you kind of know that this woman is just something else entirely. She's just her own. And the sequence is unique because it only shows Sarah Jessica Parker's character, Carrie. She's the only person in the opening title sequence, despite this show really having a big cast of memorable characters. Like, the opening was just about her. And it just really got you in the mood to really enjoy yourself watching this series. Sex and the City was the first show I ever remember being specifically impressed by its writing. Now, when I was younger than when I watched Sex and the City, I would watch The Simpsons a lot. And I thought it was hilarious and it was my favorite show. And But I, I didn't think a lot about the writing of The Simpsons. I didn't get how brilliant the, the craftsmanship behind the jokes was. I just kind of thought it just happened. But when I watched Sex and the City, I was starting to understand writing a little bit more, where it came from, and, and, and what these, these people, these actors were saying was written by somebody. And this show just impressed me so much because the characters were so witty, and they're just constantly turning phrases into like these brilliant little quips. 
that were unlike anything I'd ever heard. It all sounded so sophisticated to me. I mean, I'm a kid growing up in rural Ohio. I'd never really been anywhere in the world. I'd never known anyone who was remotely like the women on this show. And I just thought like this was the height of snappy dialogue and that Carrie's inner monologues were the way that smart people looked at the world. So I wanted to be like them. In the years since, uh, the show went off the air in 2004. It's had a couple movies and stuff since then, but the show ended in 2004. The bloom has come off a little bit on Sex and the City over the years. The show's taken some dings for being almost, you know, completely white-focused. It's it just focused on, like, affluent white women in New York. It, it fetishized a lot of minority characters who did appear on the show. It also had these overt moments of homophobia and transphobia that have aged terribly in the last 20 years since it first debuted in 98. But the opening theme song and the opening title still hold up and, to me, remain icons of television history. And in case you wondered, the man behind the Sex and the City theme song was a guy named Douglas Cuomo, and he writes this really bouncy little, like I said, salsa-style instrumental for this, you know, show that's a comedy, a sitcom, called Sex and the City. And this guy... He Before he gets the gig to write the theme song for Sex and the City, he was best known as the composer for NBC's gritty, like real as, you know, the dirt on your fingernails, cop drama, homicide life on the street. That was like the precursor to HBO's The Wire. So Doug Cuomo does the themes. He does a lot of music on homicide life on the street. He was the composer of like 100 episodes of the show or something. And then he lands this gig doing the theme song for Sex and the City. So it's just like, talk about diversity in your uh, you know, repertoire as a musician. I think Doug Cuomo had it. The Sex and the City theme is still his most well-known composition. And he should be damn proud of it, I think, because it's our pick for the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. I was a big Sex and the City stan back in the day, man. Little Clint, little like 12, 13-year-old Clint. I just thought that was how people talked in the city. I, You know, she was like a newspaper columnist. And, of course, I ended up getting into journalism in my own life. And I think the show had a little bit of a uh, a... An effect on that. Now, New York was never my thing. I was never like one of those kids. Like, I want to live in New York. I never dreamed of New York. It just never. New York never did it for me. Still doesn't to this day. I was always more of like a, I wanted to go to L.A. or something. I wanted to be where it was like hot, and you know, seeing palm trees and just the weather kind of being the same all the time. That that turned me on a little bit more than New York did. But just the way they talked, the way they acted, I just thought these women were like, this is how you need to be. Uh, have the ladies on Sex and City. I, I just, I, I kind of looked up to them, to be honest with you. It's 7.30. Were you asleep? I'm pregnant. I'm always asleep. These are my last months of freedom, and I'm spending them in bed. Well, just don't spend them alone in bed. I'm a lost cause. Go on without me. Save yourself. No, we're all going. We have to shake things up before we officially become boring. <gasps> I say we go dancing. I'm in. Let's go dancing. Okay, but not somewhere I'm going to feel worse about myself when no one's interested because I'm fat. You're not fat. You're pregnant. Yeah, that'll have men lining up at the door. But that was a show that really showed me what writing was all about. And good, like, witty, snappy writing. And now I kind of look at it, and it's been a little while since I've watched Sex and the City, but the writing was, like, too good, too clever, too too, trying to be witty. Um, So I think it... 
now the show would probably annoy me a little bit more. I, I should probably go back and watch a few more episodes of it. But uh, but back then, man, it just hit me, and I thought, hey, this is great writing. This is what great writing is. Fuck Charles Dickens. I mean, that was what we were reading at school. I want to I want to watch more Sex in the City. Hey, Jim, come on. Uh, just reliving happy memories. Carrie doesn't walk all over people. She sure as fuck did with me. Well, maybe that's because you're an asshole. I'm an asshole. She's the asshole. She never called me once after we broke up. That's because you're an asshole. She's the asshole. She's not an asshole. Thank you, sweetie. You know what? Never call me again. All right, next up, I wanted to talk about a movie that is now in the race for the upcoming Academy Awards and is, you know, kind of at the top of a lot of lists that have come out of of movies from 2020. And give my two cents on it. I'm talking about Nomadland, the... uh, quiet kind of simmering drama that comes from and it really it's like a dramedy this is not a dead serious movie there are a lot of laughs to be had in Nomadland some of them come from a dark place but so there's a lot of smiles to be had in Nomadland as well this movie comes from Chinese uh, writer and director Chloe Zhao and she if you haven't heard of her until now you're definitely going to hear from hear of her because this movie landed her a, a Marvel job. She's going to be doing one of the Marvel movies, which I think is really weird because I don't know if that's, I don't know if, how that's going to go because after seeing this movie and now I, I definitely want to see the rest of her movies. Uh, I don't know if she's Marvel. Like, I don't, I don't know what kind of a Marvel movie she's going to make. I mean, clearly she is a brilliant filmmaker as far as the way she handled this movie. But I don't know if that translates to, okay, let's give her a comic book movie. These are kind of two different worlds we're talking about here. But Chloe Zhao, if you never heard of her, she's no newcomer. She's about to turn 40. She's been around for a while. She's directed several uh, movies over the years and and has earned great acclaim. This isn't her first acclaimed movie either. But Nomadland is the one that kind of is making her a household name. And she's up for Best Director at the Oscars. And I got to say, after watching Nomadland... I think she definitely deserves to win it um, because this is about as steady a movie when you're talking about the work of a director, of a filmmaker, of putting something together. This movie is so steady from start to finish. There's no bad note. Like every part of it just works and makes sense and adds something to the proceedings, which is the master of a great director. Nothing doesn't need to be here. Nobody goes off the edge. Nobody tilts too far. She keeps everyone in control, and and what makes this movie even more impressive is a lot of the actors in the cast are not actors. So she's doing the kind of Steven Soderbergh thing where she's working with no act like people who are not actors. Of course, at the top of it, the star of the movie is Frances McDormand, and you've also got David Strait there in this, who is an Oscar nominee himself. He of course played Edward R. Murrow in the. Uh, in the George Clooney movie, Good Night and Good Luck. But Frances McDormand is probably one of the five, I'd say, best actors on the planet. She's like She is just as good as it gets. She's one, You talk about somebody who never hits a bad note, never has a bad performance, always gives it everything, and you forget you're watching an actor every time she's working. Frances McDormand is that. She's so versatile, I think she can do anything. And so she's working with a couple great actors right at the top of this thing, but the rest of them are not actors. Like they were so she. So what this movie is about, if you don't know anything about Nomadland, and I really didn't going into it, it's about these people 
who really there there's a movement of people around the United States who really live this way. They live out of their vans or their RVs or whatever and they just kind of mostly older people who've been kind of you know removed from the workforce because they're they're kind of their jobs became obsolete or they didn't have the skills like they didn't go to college or whatever and you know they had to retire early and they don't have very much money so instead of being able to buy a house they just they have a van they have a an rv or whatever and they go around the country kind of living wherever they want and they they'll stay in campgrounds or they'll stay in different places where they're allowed to stay and sometimes they'll sleep in parking lots and they have all these rules for knowing you know where can you stay where can't you stay it's almost like the hobo code back in the day of people drawn with the with chalk hobos when they would travel around the country drawing with chalk on different places about this is a good place to stop they'll give you food or avoid this place um it's kind of like that but these people are not hobos these people are not because i think hobo gives you a a, an image in your mind of of kind of like busted down they you know the kind of a depressing thing and they uh like obsolete people and homeless people these people are not homeless that Nomadland is uh, is presenting, and that's the thing that keeps coming up in the early part of the movie, because Frances McDormand's character is named Fern, and she does plenty of work in different places. It's just like temporary work, um, but people just who that she runs into and are well-meaning people, friends of hers, whatever, who know her from her past life. They're, they're all so concerned about her. And I put a hand on her shoulder. And Fern, you can come stay with me anytime you want. If you need any money, let me know. Are you still living in your van? Like, they're all very, it's very condescending. And they think they're trying to be nice. But she sees right through it because Fern is a, a very smart, very um, astute person. And just a really, one of those characters that I really enjoyed spending a couple hours with. And I think immediately going to be one of the signature roles of Frances McDormand, who's had plenty of them over the years. But I just really liked spending time with this woman. I just thought uh, I kind of liked everything about her. I kind of admired her um, because this movie really makes these people look brave because what they're doing is just bucking the system. And the movie talks a lot about anti-capitalism and stuff like that, or does a little bit. It's not a lot. It's not beating you over the head with any kind of message. Um, at all, which is another thing I really like about Nomadland. Everything about it is subtle. It's all just letting it unfold. And you watch it, you go with the flow, at like they're driving down the road in their RV. You go where it's taking you. And you just, you don't know where you're going to end up next. And I think that's the freeing thing about this lifestyle. And it's the freeing thing about this movie. This movie is not tied down to a certain, like, plot structure there's not any big thing that fern is trying to accomplish and is she going to do it there's no MacGuffin in this movie there's no big there there's a little bit of romance here but that's not what this movie is about and that ends up being something that just adds flavor to the characters but doesn't get in the way of what's really ultimately being said here so i just thought this movie was flawless I, I loved everything about it I, I was i've blown away while we're watching the movie i just didn't even want it to end i, I it just made me feel good nomadland did it, it, it made me feel uh like i was exploring it made me feel like i was seeing something that i hadn't seen and it it showed me some really gentle and admirable respectable people in a place where I didn't expect to see them living out in the desert in a bunch of vans and RVs. 
Um, but this movie paints them with such dignity that, you know, I mean, you wonder why we haven't seen these characters before. So I, I, one of the things I really liked about Nomadland also, and maybe this comes from Chloe Zhao being, you know, a non-American, being Chinese, but this movie makes America look mysterious and makes America look inviting, specifically out in the, the Midwest and kind of the rural areas. It doesn't make it look intimidating. It doesn't make it look, you know, like simple and like it's full of hicks, which is how most movies do. This movie actually makes America look like kind of cool. You know what I'm saying? Like how many movies make America look cool anymore? It's such a old timey, like antiquated, like nobody makes a movie where America looks cool because what is there for like, we all live here. We know that there's not really that much cool about America. I mean, it's pretty much like McDonald's and Walmart. I mean, it's all very predictable stuff, but this movie actually makes this country look freeing and like I said, cool. I haven't felt like America looked cool in a movie in a long time. But in Nomadland, it really does. you got this gorgeous scenery in areas that don't get a whole lot of screen time. You know, South Dakota and the deserts of Arizona, even Nebraska. You know, you get these kind, quiet people that's following. Again, these are not people that would typically be at the foreground of a movie. And certainly not an American movie. These are free spirits in the best meaning of the word. But they're older. You know, these are older people. These are not like young, hot hippies. We're going to hit the road like like what the movie typically would be. These are older people who've lived a lot of life, who's got, who have a lot of wrinkles, you know. And I, road movies are a lot of fun, usually. We all like road movies. Nomadland is certainly a road movie because it takes place over the, you know, kind of crisscrossing the country. But road movies get old because they typically follow like rich, young, white kids, right, who have the means to just take off. And there's no responsibility that they're leaving. There's no consequences to them just traveling around. It's just fun. They're just basically out on the on the road, just having fun, finding themselves. You know what I mean? It's the kind of thing that only rich, white, young people can can be able to do for themselves. But this movie, Nomadland, makes it clear how much you're going to give up if you take on this kind of life, if you hit the road, if you do just drop everything, leave where you're from, leave your family, leave your friends, and how much it, it can cost, uh, both financially and just from a, you know, from a friendship, from a relationship standpoint, all the things you're giving up when you do this. It makes that clear from the jump, and they're giving up plenty. Um, but they're also gaining a lot as well. So I just ultimately was a very rewarding movie. I thought I, I just, I just can't think of another movie that's much like Nomadland. And to me, that's about as good a compliment as I can give it because I've seen a lot of movies over the years, you know, that, and usually there's something you can watch and you can go, yeah, you know, I see a lot of this in there and you know, Nomadland is kind of its own thing. I just feel like it's it's a, a very original movie, and that is about as good a compliment as you can give. So in case you can't tell, I loved it. I, I don't think I could give it better praise. So uh, I recommend you watch it immediately. It's streaming on Hulu, which is fantastic. So thank Hulu for doing this because, you know, they've got Parasite streaming as well. So they're kind of going in on these movies that are that ones that you wouldn't necessarily see in a big theater or have access to unless you like went to the library and found the disc. Um, 
but they're letting you stream these movies, and which is really cool. So if you want to watch Nomadland now, which is a front runner for Best Picture, um, and like I said, I think Chloe Zhao is a lock for Best Director because this is how you this is how you direct a movie. I mean, she had complete control over this thing. It is firmly in her grip, and I think she tells a great story. And I think every choice works. So it's masterful filmmaking. This is what I live to go see are these kind of movies where somebody just had an idea and they executed it to perfection. That's what Chloe Zhao does here. Just a phenomenal piece of work. Nomadland, streaming now on Hulu. Watch it. Drop it. Drop everything. Turn the show off. Watch it right now. Bo never knew his parents and we never had kids. If I didn't stay, if I left, it would be like he never existed. I couldn't pack up and move on. He loved Empire. He loved his work so much. He loved being there. Everybody loved him. So I stayed. Same town, same house. It's like my dad used to say, what's remembered lives. I maybe spent too much of my life just remembering All right, I'm going to take a little breather, uh, sit back, drink some water, play a little message here for you, and then I'm going to give you five songs to add to the never-ending playlist. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All right, so like I said, Andy's not with us uh, this month. But I am going to keep adding to the playlist because we can't go an episode without having five songs added to the never-ending playlist, which you can find on Spotify. Just search Stream Police Podcast, and the playlist should come up. The show should also come up if you want to check it out um, on Spotify. You can listen to the show on Spotify. But the playlist is called the Stream Police Podcast Perfect Playlist, and it's up to more than 360 songs at this point. So uh, I think it's, it's going strong. Uh, you can pretty much listen to it nonstop at this point on a cross-country drive, and I think you'd have a good time. All right, so for your listening pleasure, let me give you five songs to add to the list, and uh, hopefully Andy will approve. But if not, tough shit, because I'm here today. First off, a track by an artist that I hope we hear a lot from in uh, future years. She's still pretty new in the game, uh, but I, I think you're going to see her 
nominated for some Grammys here in, in future years, maybe a Best New Artist kind of deal. Uh, her name's Arlo Parks, and this song is called Green Eyes, and it's just got a great sound, and she's got a beautiful voice, and just the production's stellar. I love this song, Green Eyes by Arlo Parks. Next up, let's go. Uh, let's put our dad rock hats on and uh, do a, a Roger Waters solo cut. How about 5:01 a.m., aka the pros and cons of hitchhiking, part 10, where the backup singers just put goosebumps on my skin every time I hear this song and they kick in. a song that's perfect for the times right now like just i can't imagine a song that's better for the era that we just went through with the last dumbass president we had uh and this song really takes all that to task and puts it all in perspective it's take off your tinfoil hat by jp harris oh the virus is fake so i'm going to the beach and the mask makes you want to have sex with sheep and i'll shoot you if you stop me from getting drunk over in chili's I read between the lines, or at least every 20. I skimmed the report, something seems funny, and the proof is all there. I just don't have the details, really. Well, global warming's a hoax from the supercomputer. Take all our trucks, make us drive scooters, and microchip the masses. I just know it to be so. I want the freedom to die in a senseless mass shooting. I heard Obama was paying for the protests and looting, and the proof is in the basement. Of the Alamo So take off your tinfoil hat Don't you know that's out of fashion Don't you know that Jesus frowns On all the ammo that you've been stashing Do you believe the 5G Coming in the night to take your babies Away from the Satanist hordes Good Lord, y'all must be bored You need to get off the internet That one's dedicated to all those relatives you've got That are on Facebook uh, talking about why they won't get the vaccine because they don't want Bill Gates spying on them with nanobots or whatever he's putting into their uh, their shoulders. <laughs> All right, let's go way back. Let's do one by Louis Prima now. I love this one. This is just one of those good crank it up, uh, flip a middle finger, and uh, drink whatever you've got around you uh, and just let Louis take it away. It's called I'll Be Glad When You're Dead. I'll be glad when you're dead, you're asking you. You're asking you. I'll be glad when you're in your grave, you dog, dirty dog. I invite you to my house for a meal. All my meatballs you try to steal. Mm, you're a dirty dog. You're dirty dog. I will 
standing on a corner plastered when it bring your body by. Nobody can make a song called I'll Be Glad When You're Dead as fun as Louis Prima. Finally, you got to have a little bit of fun, right? I mean, that's what it's all about. We're, we're all dead too soon anyway. So how about Dave Bartholomew's My Ding-A-Ling? There's a little girl, her name is Sing. She liked to play with my ding-a-ling. My ding-a-ling is the cutest thing. When Sing plays with my ding-a-ling, my ding-a-ling, my ding-a-ling. Oh my, it's the greatest thing. My ding-a-ling is the greatest thing. When Sing plays with my Andy might disagree, but I think that one is is 50 times better than uh, Chuck Berry's version of it, which was like his biggest hit that he ever had in his career. But I love the Dave Bartholomew version, a classic, a stone cold sleazy classic. So there you go. There's five songs. Check out the playlist on Spotify. All right, let's change the subject and get back to talking about what's streaming on the box. I want to talk about a couple of documentaries that I watched here in the last month and that really left an impact on me for, you know, various reasons. Pretty serious stuff though. So we're not going to be having a whole lot of fun here in the second half of of the show. Just just I'm going to just tell you that right now. But this is stuff that needs to be talked about. So, if you have HBO Max, you've probably seen, you know, pictures, clips, whatever. You've probably seen the title Alan V Faro pop up a few times and you wondered, is that any good? Is it worth my time? Um because Let's face it. Everybody cranks out like crime court court case documentaries. You know, every day a new one comes out from somewhere, and including HBO Max, they've they've really done a lot of them just in the short time they've been around. And HBO has always kind of done a lot of these kind of movies. But Alan V. Farrow is pretty new, and what it's about is uh, the title comes from the court case between Woody Allen and Mia Farrow who were together in a relationship, not married, but were together in a very serious relationship for a lot of years. And they worked together for a long time. They did a bunch of movies together in a row in the 1980s, into the early 90s. And their relationship went sour in a hurry when um, Mia Farrow's, well, Mia Farrow's got a lot of kids. She has adopted a lot of kids. She's got, I think, nine children was is it nine or is it more than that i can't remember i I watched this alan v farrow and they get into how many kids she has and she's got a a huge family most of them are adopted but not all of them some of them are biological and their ages range drastically you know from throughout her life mia farrow basically was somebody who always wanted a big family she came from a big family herself and she really wanted that for herself and she carried it out and she's like this really devoted great mother uh, which is one of the things that's shown a lot in Alan V. Farrow. But anyway, the relationship went south in a hurry when one of their daughters together, because it was a daughter that Woody Allen had adopted himself, and it was one of uh, Mia Farrow's adopted daughters. Again, this, was, this wasn't a daughter that had biological ties to either of them. But she told Mia Farrow when she was very young that uh, Woody Allen had sexually assaulted her. And so it ends up being this big 
court case that uh, it, it's tabloid drama all over the New York tabloids and the worldwide tabloids because Woody Allen is about as famous as anybody on the planet at this point. Uh, when this all happens in the early 1990s, and this is a bombshell thing. I mean, here you are, you have a kid saying that he sexually assaulted, saying that this beloved icon from Hollywood sexually assaulted her. Uh, and so it's this this court case, this very ugly court case between the two of them um, that is essentially a custody case of Alan trying to get custody of the kids because he's saying that Mia Farrow planted this whole story in Dylan Farrow is the girl's name in Dylan Farrow's head. And that, you know, it's all being made up. So what Alan V. Farrow is really about is that whole thing. And it's about uh, it's a lot about Dylan Farrow. She's one of the main figures, probably the main figure of the documentary. She does a lot of the interview uh, sit down segments. And Mia Farrow is a big part of it as well. So is Ronan Farrow, uh, the journalist who is uh, Mia Farrow and, and Woody Allen's only biological child together. Uh, and so it's a it's a lot on the side, obviously, of the Pharaoh family because Woody Allen refused to talk to the crew for this movie. So it, you, what you end up with is a lot of one sided stuff. But I think the filmmakers did a great job of, of doing a lot of research, of vetting, of showing a lot of courtroom evidence, police evidence, um, you know, talking to police officers who were involved in the investigation. So it's not just like here, take their word for it, even though I think at this point. You know, with, with how the paradigm, how the conversation has shifted with the way we look at sexual assault allegations and how much more seriously we take them from victims now than we used to, than, you know, the media used to specifically. Uh, I think even Dylan Farrow, just her account of it would be enough. But there's a lot here. There's a lot of good evidence and there's a lot of stuff that will make you look at Woody Allen in a different light. So I after I ended up watching this, so Alan V. Farrow is... Uh, four or five episodes long. Um, sorry, I'm forgetting now <laughs> how many episodes it is, but it's a few episodes, um, an hour each. And it, it's really like goes in depth into Woody Allen and Mia Farrow's relationship. Um, some problematic behavior. It goes into, uh, the, the good years. It goes into the bad years and it goes into also Woody Allen eventually marrying, Another one of Mia Farrow's daughters, who he was essentially not really a stepdad to because they weren't married, but he was essentially a stepdad to her. And then he eventually marries her. Um, and that would be Soon Yi Previn. So the, the, there's a lot going on in this, but I don't see how you could watch Alan V. Farrow and still feel okay watching Woody Allen movies. And this is coming from a guy who is about as big a Woody Allen fan as you can meet. Like, I love Woody Allen's movies. I mean, I count Annie Hall and Manhattan and Zelig and uh, Crimes and Misdemeanors. I count those as some of my favorite movies ever made. I, I Watching a new Radio Days, I mean, just the, the list is endless. Watching... A new Woody Allen movie that I haven't seen, to me, it was one of, at one point, the most exciting things that I thought you could do in life. Because it was like you're getting led into a, you know, this new philosophy that you haven't heard yet. And these brilliant new insights that you hadn't, you know, been privy to yet. So I absolutely worshipped Woody Allen years ago when we were, uh, when Andy and I ran OverdueReview.com. 
I wrote a long piece about Woody Allen and his movies and, and being able to separate art from the artists. And I think at that time, this was long, this was years ago, I think I came down on the side of, yeah, you have to separate the art from the artists sometimes because a lot of the artists we like are assholes and everyone knows that. And so it's like you could almost not like anybody. But I have come over the years to realize that that was just a very simplified way of looking at it. And it was a way of having it both ways. It was like, yeah, I acknowledge that he's a piece of shit, but I also want to enjoy his art and I don't want to sacrifice anything myself as far as giving that up. So I wasn't really losing anything and I was sleeping well because I thought, well, you know, at least I'm paying lip service to the, the survivors here. But when you watch Alan V. Farrow, it puts a face to these claims and it tells you just how disgusting and awful these claims are and you get to hear it in great detail from this little girl who's on video explaining what happened to her and then who was on video at a later age in her 30s talking about how this has affected her and you can just see it i mean it's just this is not acting and woody allen continues to deny it and say it's you know fed to her and blah 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 and it's just this you cannot watch alan v farrow and not have a shift in feelings toward him and his movies. So it's, I think this is a very affecting movie and it, it reminds me a lot of HBO's uh, leaving Neverland that they did last year. Was it uh, the one with the accusers of Michael Jackson and victims of, of his sexual assault who finally, you know, came forward on camera and gave these very detailed accounts of what happened. And you know, this movie that movie was tough to watch and I gave it a good review here on the show as well. Alan V. Farrow is kind of the same thing, but it's almost more personal because this was a guy who was like their dad. This was like Dylan Farrow. This was her dad. She loved him and she like worshipped him really like as a father uh, and and the way he treated her and what happened um, is just it'll make you sick to your stomach really. And so. This is one of those things, like, Woody Allen's been one of the biggest people that has been brought down uh, over the last few years as far as his legacy being tarnished from what some people call it cancel culture, but that's just usually, that, that's kind of a dog whistle from conservatives who are just trying to protect these kind of people. Um, but really, it, it's just, it's just as my great-grandmother used to say, the chicken's coming home to roost. That's what she would always say. And, and so what goes around comes around. You know, we've all heard that hackneyed cliche. And this is what I think, it, this is all that it is. It's not like some, it's not some big conspiracy like we need to, we need to finally bring Woody Allen down. It, it's, it's things that he's done that he's gotten a pass for over a lot of years, but now Finally, the chickens are coming home to roost. And so you got him, you got Bill Cosby, you got Roman Polanski, Louis C.K. These are guys who were like titans, titanic figures, beloved figures who have been tarnished over the years. But anyone who gets all worked up about celebrities getting canceled is missing the point of this entire thing, which is about elevating the voices of people who've been victimized and and. and and Alan V. Farrow goes into this a lot because Dylan Farrow talks about feeling like she doesn't matter compared to Woody Allen, like feeling like she matters way less 
than him because she's not famous. She's not, she hasn't written all these movies. She hasn't won all these awards. She hasn't earned all this box office money. She hasn't given all these people their careers. So she feels like her story has been ignored over the years because she doesn't matter as much as him. And in a celebrity obsessed culture, like the one we live in, I don't know how she couldn't feel that way. And you've, and you just start thinking about other victims who are in even less of a place to talk about it because maybe they're not as privileged as she is. I mean, again, this is a white woman. She comes from a rich family. Her mom is still, you know, Mia Farrow, who even without Woody Allen is one of the most famous people, you know, in the world and very wealthy from her own great acting career before Woody Allen ever came into the picture. Um, so she's in a, in a unique place to be able to write op-eds in the New York Times and tell her story, whereas a lot of people can't. You know, and so it makes you think about that. And, and I think this this was just a really kind of powerful series uh, at the end. And I, I just feel like what it made me think about, we know Woody Allen, Bill Cosby, Roman Polanski, so many of these other old guard, you know, entertainment people have had their images tarnished over the years and are are difficult it's difficult to watch their stuff now without thinking about that stuff um and, and without that getting in the way and i think it should get in the way but it made me think even more about the people from the older generations the entertainers who were also geniuses who still have great images who have not had their images tarnished who have not been you know quote unquote canceled because they didn't do trashy shit because they didn't bring themselves down um because they didn't tarnish their own image so the chickens are not coming home to roost for these people so there are plenty you know for every celebrity who gets canceled or whatever there's a hundred other ones that haven't been canceled and that you should still celebrate their legacy but I, but the absolute like the great ones like it made me think about mel brooks so you you want somebody who you can look up to, who's from the old guard of Hollywood, who's from the same era of Woody Allen, whose career is kind of comparable to Woody Allen's, Mel Brooks. I mean, this is a guy who, Jewish kid, who fought the Nazis in World War II. He went to World War II, fought the Nazis, comes back, does a movie in The Producers where he makes lambast the Nazis, makes fun of their whole deal, the way they walked, the way they dressed, makes them look effeminate, makes them look silly, and allows other people to laugh, allows non-Jews to laugh at this stuff because it's just he does it in such a ridiculous and hilarious way. But this is a guy who put his life on the line. He fought the Nazis and then comes back and gives us the, the funniest satire of the Nazis that I think will ever be done. So this is, and Mel Brooks is a guy that has not, his image has not been tarnished over the years. I mean, is, has his humor always been very bawdy and can some people say it's certainly offensive? Yeah, I mean, no question. Uh, but this is not a guy who's in the business of hurting people. He's not victimizing people. He maybe just has a little bit too much much fun. It made me think about Lucille Ball. Uh, I mean, again, an icon, a groundbreaker, uh, somebody who was such a brilliant businesswoman in entertainment uh, that she was able to 
control basically her career control her production uh she understood the value of like the reason why we're able to see old episodes of i love lucy now is because of lucille ball it's not because of the people at cbs or some guy who was you know let's keep the tapes it's because of lucille ball you know the honeymooners was one of the great tv shows of the same time as i love lucy was on but very few episodes of the honeymooners exist in high quality and and some are lost forever because people just didn't keep them like tv was such a disposable medium back then they would do a show and nobody like would keep the recording of it certainly not on film or anything and store it somewhere because they just never thought anyone would ever want to watch it again i mean they couldn't envision but lucille ball knew that there was value in this there was that if you kept so she kept all these recordings of her shows uh of of i love lucy and she owned the rights to them and made a killing selling them for reruns as you know tv started getting into that kind of stuff and that's why you're able to watch episodes of i love lucy in like gorgeous high definition now because it was because of lucille ball brilliant also she's somebody who was tracked by the fbi for having communist ties and i mean she marries a cuban guy so i'm just saying lucille ball somebody again that you can worship she's fine she didn't molest anybody she didn't assault anybody was she a hard ass sure of course i'm sure she made a lot of people cry but she's still somebody you can look up to how about billy wilder billy wilder was woody allen before woody allen ever existed if billy wilder didn't exist woody allen wouldn't have been able to exist you can watch billy wilder movies and feel totally fine about yourself i recommend it yeah, watch any of them. They're all good. I mean, he's a guy who basically never missed. Just check out a, a, a Billy Wilder movie and you'll be in for a good time or a great drama. Either way, it doesn't matter. I, I've never been let down by a Billy Wilder film. Sidney Lumet, one of my all-time favorite directors, one of the rare powerhouse artists in Hollywood, big powerhouse filmmaker whose name was like you could put it on the poster and people would know Sidney Lumet. This is going to be serious cinema. He was also a really nice guy behind the scenes. Like everyone, when Sidney Lumet died, his old actors that worked for him all came out of the woodwork talking about how he was the greatest director to work for. He was an actor's director because he trusted actors. He treated them with respect, with dignity. He never acted like he was. Uh, he walked onto the set and treated people like shit and yelled at people and made them cry and stuff. That wasn't Lumet's deal. He just got great performances out of them because they trusted him and because he trusted them. He was just a, like a nice guy. Can you imagine that? Big powerhouse Hollywood director, nice guy, Sidney Lumet, such a rare creature in Hollywood history. You can watch his movies, feel good about yourself. And he's got a lot of them. And again, he's a guy that I've really never been let down by. Um, I mean, they're not all on the top level, but they're all like good. And some of them are absolutely just to, you know knock you on your ass great movies like the pawnbroker uh immediately come to mind and dog day afternoon of course and serpico it just tremendous his movies from the 70s uh just almost impossible to beat people like judy garland a total victim of hollywood who nonetheless gave us someone to idolize on screen and was a good person so dedicated to her craft and such a powerhouse Lily Tomlin, one of the most versatile, talented people in entertainment history, who is also regarded as a great human being, nice person, hard worker, who doesn't, again, she doesn't sexually assault people. She doesn't parade around naked like Charlie Rose or something. 
uh, just because she's exercising her ego. You know what I mean? This is just a person who respects people and does great work and expects the same from them. So that's just some of the people like that came to mind as I was watching uh, Alan V. Farrow. And I'm like, there are, you know, some of these greats have been brought down because the the past, th- the ugly things they've done in the past have finally come to light or people have finally paid attention to their victims and have have sh- finally showed them some respect. And the chickens have come home to roost again, as my great-grandmother would say. But there are a lot of great artists from Hollywood history who have not, who that's not the case. Like, their careers hold up, their personalities hold up, and they're fine. You can watch their stuff guilt-free. So, again, don't get all worked up about cancel culture and, I can't watch anybody's movies anymore without feeling bad. Yes, you can. Watch some of those people that I just talked about and feel good about yourself. A lot of times with those, it just comes down to, ego how big was their ego and how willing were they to uh just exploit people to get what they wanted um is really what it comes down to a lot with some of these really bad cases of people whose entire legacies have been torn asunder by their own shitty behavior One more great documentary about uh, celebrity culture that I watched recently. Maybe great is a little strong. I'm going to say good. This was an interesting documentary that I watched uh, that explores celebrity culture. And it is, uh, you may have heard of it, Framing Britney Spears. This kind of became a uh, a meme almost. It was so popular in the last couple months. But Framing Britney Spears, if you've been looking for it, it's part of the show The New York Times Presents. So if you look up The New York Times Presents on Hulu or on FX Now, where it airs, you'll find the episode Framing Britney Spears. It's an episode of that show. So it's not like a feature-length movie called Framing Britney Spears. It's actually like a one-hour episode of a show called The New York Times Presents. So this is coming from The New York Times. So as you could probably expect, the sourcing, the production's very good. The um, you know the tone is very serious. It's, it's good stuff. It's kind of like Frontline. It feels like Frontline a little bit almost though like frontline light because I, I don't feel like it was quite on frontlines level um, as far as the sourcing as far as the people they got to they interviewed some of the people that they interviewed in this movie just felt like you know like they were fans or something and it wasn't I, I, you know I don't know how much stock I'm going to put into that but what but what framing Britney Spears is about is it takes a close look at the conservatorship which is this weird like i don't even know what to call it It, it's a it's some kind of like legal situation that some people find themselves in when they are like deemed mentally unfit or just unfit to represent themselves and, and handle their own money especially if they have a good bit of money and you know they may be prone to like wasting it throwing it away whatever trusting the wrong people um somebody will try to put them in a conservatorship, a parent or someone like that, or, or a, a legal, you know, usually it would be like a lawyer. It wouldn't be their parent. It would be somebody who's an independent from them, um, who just has their financial interests in mind. Uh, they would be put in a conservatorship where they cannot control their own money. They have to basically ask permission to do things, 
with their money. And Britney Spears has been under a conservatorship since 2008. But the person who runs her conservatorship is her dad. And this movie goes into how problematic that is, how weird this situation is, because there are a lot of people under conservatorships, but very few of them are, are run by their parents. And certainly in a, in a high profile case like this, it's weird that it would be her parent. And it's weird that it would be a dad who was essentially like not really there for her a lot when she was young. Like the movie goes into Britney Spears' life and her you know, life as an entertainer, which has been going on since she was very young. Um, she's essentially always been an entertainer. There really wasn't a time where she wasn't. But her dad was not like a huge part of her life until kind of now when he runs like kind of every part of her life. So the movie just takes a look at that. And, and it really drills more. The conservatorship stuff is is distressing and I think is important because it's something that I had never really had heard about. I mean, and a lot of people wouldn't know about. So it's shining light on something that does affect a lot of people. There are people under these conservatorships and how hard it can be to get out from under one once you've been deemed unfit. Like even though Britney Spears in the last few years has, you know, been shown to be, you know, a great mom and has has been an incredible worker as far as being out in Las Vegas doing her residencies putting on you know all these shows that have packed the theaters that have gotten good reviews from the audience um you know she's a beloved icon now and she's really handled herself and her fame well especially in the last few years but the the where I thought framing Britney Spears was the most interesting and where the framing part comes in is how it really drills into the media coverage of Britney Spears at the height of her fame. And we all remember seeing the tabloid pictures of her shaving her head. And it was like, Britney Spears has gone nuts. Uh, and, you know, her, like, beating up a photographer's car, basically, like hitting it with an umbrella or whatever. We all remember those pictures, and it was like, Britney's a bad mom. Britney's going nuts. She's on drugs now. She's crazy. And this was all how the media painted her. And we all kind of, a lot of us bought into it and went along with it and never gave Britney Spears the benefit of the doubt whatsoever. And this this movie takes a good examination of tabloid culture and how the, the, the double standards that exist for men and for women who are famous and shows how paparazzi members are able to earn a lot of money by basically inciting bad behavior in celebrities who are already on the edge. And then they'll shoot photos of them that make them look, look absolutely unhinged and they'll get a bunch of money for selling those pictures. And that's exactly what happens to Britney Spears in a couple of cases. So I thought that part of it was very interesting because it does go a lot into tabloid culture and the problems there. And, man, it just makes you wonder why that still exists. Like, uh, who are, is buying these tabloids? I honestly don't know anyone who buys tabloids. Do you know anybody who buys tabloids? Because we have all seen them, but I don't know anyone that reads them. It just seems like such a bizarre and sleazy business to still exist in this current climate. But I don't know. Maybe we just need to... Wait for uh, older generations to move along before we can finally really purge ourselves of tabloid culture. I don't know. Maybe I'm uh, I'm being a little bit too idealistic and hopeful here. But again, I, I thought the people they interviewed were just so-so. But I thought the message was really well done in framing Britney Spears. And, and it was interesting. The file footage and the looks at the headlines Spears made 
at the height of her fame were eye-opening and showed you the sexism in media just like 20 years ago. It makes it look like the 1990s were like the 1950s as far as the media's view of women and women in music. It's like, I mean, it's downright embarrassing, man. I mean, you're just wondering, like, how did this happen so recently? It's crazy. Um, And I thought another important thing that came out of framing Britney Spears was the revelations about Justin Timberlake. It kind of made him somebody whose whole legacy needs to be re-examined. And I think people had already started doing that from a perspective of, well, this was a, a classic, you know, another example like Elvis of a white kid, clean cut white kid who basically takes black music, um, makes it white and sells a bunch of records and, you know, gets rich off of doing black music, essentially. Uh, so people thought that about Justin Timberlake for a long time and, and thought he was phony and all that stuff. But this re- this movie, Framing Britney Spears, makes Timberlake look like a, a, a villain in one part as it gets to their breakup and, and the conversations about their sex life when they were dating as like these teenage idols who were in a relationship together. Anybody who was alive then remembers them dating each other. It was always in the news. Um and the movie really puts it a lot of stuff on him uh, and, and kind of tarnishes his nice guy image. And uh, I thought I think it, it was very affecting in that way as well. There's some stuff in here that really makes Timberlake look bad. Um, but I kind of I thought the one two punch of this movie and the Oprah interview with Megan and Harry that just recently happened as well was really powerful. It was like they both kind of happened back to back. And both of these showed the way that women can really be completely torn apart by unfair tabloid coverage. Um, And nobody ever takes their side. Nobody ever believes them, really, or even listens to them. They just want to buy into the narrative that these are problematic women and that they deserve to be torn down. Um, And while one of the weird things about framing Britney Spears is that Britney Spears herself does not speak in it. And famously, Britney Spears has not been speaking like at all, which is another creepy thing about this movie that you'll see. She's almost it it makes it look like she's been held prisoner, essentially. Um, And that's where the like the whole movement hashtag free Britney, which was started by her fans. And there's this whole like cottage industry around hashtag free Britney at this point. Um, That's where framing Britney Spears comes from. And it does get into a lot. These fans that have started this movement have been in her corner Um, even if Britney Spears herself hasn't necessarily come out and said she's in favor of it, um, and, and hasn't necessarily come out and said she wants to be out of her conservatorship. So it's, but who knows, is she not allowed to say that? Or does she really not think it it's, there's a lot of mystery surrounding this. So it's going to be one of those stories that will not have a resolution for a while. Um, but I, I, I like that this, this little documentary came along and kind of made us, at least us who weren't involved in the free Britney movement, aware that this is happening and something you need to know about. Um, and I think Britney Spears's fans have really carried the torch here uh, because this is an issue that is a little bit esoteric. And it, I think it would have faded into the background because let's face it, a conservatorship is not a very interesting topic, really. I mean, it's kind of dull. It's like legal ease stuff. But it's something that has a real impact and weight on people's lives, especially disabled people, people who are deemed to be mentally unfit, stuff like that. Um, so I think it's something that deserves to be examined. And uh, being in the case of Britney Spears, it's just she has given it a face that people can relate to and remember. And um, 
it's uh, I, I think it, it's been an interesting movement as far as kind of people, again, thinking about Britney Spears and, and reexamining her career in the ways we were kind of unfair to her, because this movie does show you the way that the media and a lot of people were unfair to her over the years uh, when she didn't really get a chance to speak out on her own behalf. So Framing Britney Spears, streaming now on Hulu and on FX now. If you want to check it out, it's under the the New York Times Presents umbrella. So if you're looking for it, New York Times Presents, uh, the episode's called Framing Britney Spears. Uh, it's short, so it's not you're not going to be in for like a whole night with watching this. You can kind of watch it with dinner and... Uh, It'll give you something to talk about, something to think about, uh, and it's a, an interesting diversion, I think, from whatever you may be going through, but a, a, a damning portrait of how the media treats women celebrities um, who maybe step out of line a little bit, which the media in, in America, of course, famously does not like when our women celebrities do. But it's streaming now on Hulu and FX now. I do recommend you check it out if you have the time. Roberto calls me up. He goes, Dano, don't call anyone. Get your camera, your video camera over here, and maybe you can get this, that I'm, that I'm getting Britney Spears by myself. I caught up eventually with him, and she was going out visiting Kevin Featherline at his home. The kids meant the world to Britney, and she wanted to see her kids. And Kevin said no. We went to a gas station. She was with her cousin, Allie, I looked at Brittany from the windshield and I was videotaping her and I said, how, how are you doing? You doing okay? I'm concerned about you though, okay? We go back to Kevin Featherline's house. She buzzes the door again. He doesn't open the gate. Well, now she's upset. So they pull up behind a Jiffy Lube store. I go to the car. I tell Brittany, hey, Brittany, all I'm going to do is I'm just going to ask you a couple of questions, and then I'm going to leave you alone. And Allie's coming up to me, and she's like, guys, please, please. Please, guys. Don't, guys, please, please, guys. And Brittany just grabbed the umbrella, started coming after me, and starts beating the passenger side of my truck. That night was not a good night for her. Oh, wow, she did that too? Did? And it was not a good night for us. Man. Oh, my God. <laughs> but it was a good night for us because it was a money shot. All right, before I get to the movies now streaming on Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, and HBO Max, I always like to tell you about the best thing I watched this month. And this month, I already told you about it. It was Chloe Zhao's Nomadland tremendous movie like i said i thought it was flawless from start to finish so that's the best thing i watched this month check it out on hulu right now all right let's get to something funny and serious streaming now on all the major streaming platforms let's start on hulu because for something serious i'll go ahead and give you nomadland it's streaming right now for you let's go with something funny on hulu how about from 1974 i already told you about mel brooks and how you can watch his movies and feel good still Young Frankenstein, essential Mel Brooks, essential 1970s comedy. Um, great tribute being paid to the old Universal monster movies. The look of this. I cannot ever get over how good Young Frankenstein looks. Like, it's one of those movies that 
I have it on Blu-ray, and it's the only way to watch it is like in crisp, ultra-clear high definition because it is just a gorgeous black and white, like stunningly beautiful movie, especially for something that's ultimately a silly comedy um, with a lot of body humor in it. Uh, and, you know, a, <laughs> a young descendant of Dr. Frankenstein, who now goes by the name Dr. Frankenstein, played by uh, the late, great Gene Wilder, because he's embarrassed of what his, you know, old uh, uh, forefather uh, did to the family name. So, you know, he tries to convince people that he's not a Frankenstein. He's a Frankenstein. Uh, it's just a great movie. It's hilarious. It's it's there's a reason why everyone loves young Frankenstein. It's unbeatable. 1974. It's on Hulu right now. Check it out. If you're looking for something funny, let's go to Netflix. Something funny on Netflix. I'm going to give you uh, from 2016, 20th Century Women. This was not really like a funny, you're not going to like die laughing watching this movie. It's definitely more of a dramedy, definitely uh, more of that kind of a flair, but really good movie. Oscar nominee from a few years ago. Annette Benning is very good in it. Greta Gerwig in a great acting turn is in this movie, Elle Fanning, who I always enjoy. I love Elle Fanning. I think she's one of the best young actors that there is in the business. Um, and uh, I can't even call her young anymore. I don't even know how old she is. I feel like she's been around forever. Like I feel like I've been watching her movies for 20 years, even though she looks like she's about 20 years old. Uh, but 20th Century Women is a great cast of mostly women. Um, and I thought it was a really good movie. It was uh, one of those that I saw in theaters by myself. And really just came away enjoying it. It was uh, uh, just, like I said, a good movie, good uh, kind of coming-of-age character piece as well. So that one's streaming for you on Netflix. From 1990, something serious on Netflix. Maybe debatable whether or not this is serious. Total Recall, the ultimate Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. That's not a Terminator movie because T2 is probably the ultimate Arnold movie. But Total Recall is right there. Like, if you like sci-fi action, if you like Arnold Schwarzenegger at all, you got to watch Total Recall. It's a classic, man. Sharon Stone is as badass as she gets, and she gets pretty badass. She's very good in this movie, um, just intimidating and cool, and uh, Arnold's fantastic. He gives it his all, and it's just a weird, so weird. Total Recall is just wonderfully weird. Um, just a lot of strange parts of that movie. I can never get enough of it. It's streaming now on Netflix. One of those movies that you'll watch once and like never forget it. It'll never, you'll never completely forget that movie. On uh, Amazon Prime Video, something funny for you. Andy's going to like this from 1985. Back to the Future. Come on. You're, and I'm sure everyone listening to this has seen Back to the Future. But if you haven't, if there's like an outside chance that you never watched it, because whatever, I, I get it. It's one of those movies that's been talked about ad nauseum. You've seen a million references to back to the future you've heard about it from all the old people in your life for forever and so you're just like fuck it i'm not even gonna watch that movie i'm not i'm not going anywhere near that thing please go near back to the future it's tremendous it's just got it all it's hilarious it's poignant at times um but it's just got a great very strange friendship at the center of it between this old uh scientist played by christopher lloyd and this young california uh, you know, wannabe rock and roll kid uh, played by um, the great Michael J. Fox. So it's it's hard to imagine anyone, any casting being as good as Christopher Lloyd and Michael J. Fox in Back to the Future. It's just magical 
that it even happened. So 1985, Back to the Future. Check it out on Amazon Prime in glorious HD. Uh, again, I might add, it's another good-looking movie. That is something funny for you. Something serious on Amazon Prime Video from 07, Quentin Tarantino's uh, off-forgotten Death Proof, which was part of the uh, Grindhouse double feature that came out. I remember going to see the, both of those in theaters. It was it was Death Proof and uh, Robert Rodriguez's uh, Planet Terror were, were together. It was like a five-hour extravaganza. You went and watched these two movies back-to-back and uh, for the price of one. I really enjoyed both of them. I actually liked Planet Terror more than Death Proof at the time, but Death Proof is is really stylish, cool. Um, it's got some good dialogue in it. It's uh, got some really cool women in it uh, as far as its main characters go. A really good cast of made up almost all of women, and, and Kurt Russell is fantastic as this unhinged old stunt driver. Uh, and, man, the car wrecks in Death Proof are right up there with some of the best you'll ever see in a movie they are just visceral so uh check it out it's 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 a pretty cool movie um and like i said one of tarantino's kind of under the radar flicks from the last 20 years so check that out on amazon right now death proof cool movie good music uh and finally on hbo max something funny for you how about 1996's space jam did you miss space jam the first time did you think it looked stupid and juvenile well it wasn't all right it was awesome and it still holds up to this day it's funny michael jordan is one of the all-time cultural icons and uh you know he i mean he, he does a nice job in this movie but bill murray's funny wayne knight all the great bugs bunny and and lola bunny and you know S- sylvester and and tweety and all those great characters just it just works. Something about Space Jam. It's one of those movies that should not work. It's a crazy elevator pitch, but it works. Still holds up to this day. And uh, it's a guilty pleasure for many of us from the 1990s. But they're doing a sequel now with LeBron James, so I think you should check out Space Jam before you watch the new one, which is going to be hitting uh, HBO Max here pretty soon. Finally, something serious for you on HBO Max. 1979's Best Picture winning... Kramer versus Kramer. This one hit me hard as a child of divorce. Many of you out there listening might be one as well. Uh, this was one of the first dramas to really take a serious look at divorce uh, and and you know how it can how it hits everybody. And but it's especially about a dad and and his son. Um, and it's a very good father son movie. Uh, and Dustin Hoffman is excellent in it. Meryl Streep's very good. She doesn't, she's not in it that much. I remember when I watched Kramer versus Kramer, I was expecting a lot more of her, but this was very early in her career and she's just not in it very much, but the scenes she has are powerful and it required an actor of her caliber to be able to carry them. But Dustin Hoffman, this is really his movie and he's very good in it. And it's uh, it's just a, a strong character drama, family drama, um, about a guy just trying to prove that he's a fit father and uh, trying to prove that he's good at this job, even if it's not necessarily a job that he had all that confidence in himself uh, in doing when the movie starts. There's a lot of growth on display in Kramer versus Kramer, and it's just kind of a beautiful, um, just a great movie. Uh, nice piece of 1970s cinema, which is my favorite decade for movies and this is a a good way to kind of end the decade i think Uh, a different thing that a lot of directors had been doing a lot more human than a lot of stuff that comes out 
of that decade. All right, that's going to do it for another edition of the Stream Police Podcast. Always appreciate you hanging out with us here. Um, once again, you can uh, find me on Instagram at Mr. Clint Davis. You can find Andy at Andy Sedlak. You can uh, reach out to me at theclintdavis at gmail.com. And you can hit him at sedlakjournal at gmail.com. We always like to hear from you, my friend. Always good uh, to hang out with you here on this monthly trip into what's streaming. Talk to you in a few weeks. Until then, stream on, my friend. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.